Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Satchel Burton. I've called Soma home past four years, and I'm grateful to be celebrating Advent with you. If you're now joining us, this is the third Sunday of our Advent series, where we've been intentional about looking at who the Trinity is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all active and at work in the Advent story. And if you're not familiar with Advent, it's a time where the church has historically prepared itself to receive the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do this through traditional readings, lighting of candles. And for my family, the holiday season is really marked by one special tradition. It happens one night of the year, so it's a big deal. And it's when all of my cousins, aunts, uncles, my emos, comos are all in town. And my mom brings everyone together to make mandu. And if you're not familiar with mandu, basically it's just Korean dumplings. They can be filled with kimchi, vegetables, noodles, pork, and other meats. Um, and it's really, really good. And that night, we literally make hundreds and hundreds of mandu dumplings. It's crazy. And as you'll see from the pictures, like each person is given a roll. Um, you can roll out mandu flour until your forearms burn. You could fill them, you could fold them, and if you're super brave, you can even fry them. Um, I think I burnt those, actually, now that I'm looking at it, so that's not a good one to show. But um, if you ask me what my favorite part of this family tradition was, you'd probably expect me to say eating the mandu. But that's actually my second 
favorite part. The most important part to me is the time I get to spend with my family. It's a really tight space, so there's no personal space. Um, and so you can't help but interact with the people next to you. Uh, our kitchen is filled with laughter, with stories talking about my grandma, my hominy, and the things she used to tell us. And there's a sense of closeness that only happens when you're around the dinner table with somebody. The real joy found in mandu making, and really any Christmas tradition, is fellowship. Because we have a deep longing to be known and loved. And this finds fertile soil around a Christmas tree, around a dinner table with family and friends, or a secret Santa gift exchange. And when we think about the Trinity, I think we're really comfortable talking about the fellowship between the Father and the Son, and even thinking about our own relationship with Jesus the Son. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, um, you know, it can, it can get, you know, a little weird. Uh, we're not as comfortable as imagining a spirit relating to Father and Son. And I think for us, we can become unsure of, do I talk to this spirit? Does the spirit talk to me? And especially with the modern mind, that seems a little ancient. But that's actually where I want us to go today. I want us once again to meet the Holy Spirit who lives in love and unity with the Father and who invites you and me at the table to enjoy a life of intimate fellowship with our God. Okay, so here's the plan. I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to look at Luke's account of the Advent story, which Lizzie so beautifully read for us. Uh, and we're also going to look at the larger narrative of Scripture to first understand who this Spirit is. These are going to be foundational truths, but I think they're incredibly powerful. And for the rest of this morning, we'll take a look at how the Spirit really does change everything, all the way from the individual to the world around us. So I'm going to pray, and I'd love for you to join with me. Gracious Father, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for drawing us near, and thank you for the family of brothers and sisters that are gathered today. I pray for soft hearts to receive whatever the Spirit may be giving, illuminating, or calling us to. I pray it would be your words and not mine. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen. Amen. All right. So Luke chapter 1, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, he has incredible detailed information about the Advent story. So before Lizzie's reading, the angel Gabriel appears to a priest named Zechariah in the temple, and he tells Zechariah, hey, you and your wife Elizabeth, even though you've been barren and unable to have children, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Zechariah doesn't believe him, and so the angel Gabriel ma makes him mute until all these things will come to pass. And then we see the same angel visit Mary. I'm going to pick up in verse 28, chapter 1 of Luke. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But as we see in verse 29, Mary is troubled at this saying. 
She's trying to discern what it could mean. Could the favored one of the Lord really be an average teenager in a small and uncelebrated town like Nazareth? And the angel tries to comfort her. Mary, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You don't have to be a doctor to know that Mary being a virgin makes it impossible biologically for her to conceive a child. And so Mary asks the question, how will this be? And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the shadow of the, or excuse me, the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, God does not see Mary's insignificance or the restraints of her biology as hindrances, but they will actually highlight the divine creativity and power of our God. It will illuminate once and for all that God's presence draws near not to crush us, but to give us life and freedom. And it invites us to desire, to want the Holy Spirit to overshadow our lives, to bring new life to our story. This picture of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary's womb may sound very novel to us today, but it's actually a part of a continuous theme that we see in the scriptures, going all the way back to the beginning, where God's Spirit tends to act in the same way. And so I believe if we look at at least two of these instances, one in Genesis and one in Exodus, we can actually better understand who this Spirit is. If you flip with me to Genesis 1, this is where the author recounts the creation of the universe. And in verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and earth. So we meet this pre-existent God, this God who's always existed. And from the past weeks, we know that he's existed within a loving relationship in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And picking up in verse 2, we're introduced to the Spirit. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. Right away, we're, we're encountering a very similar image to Luke chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovering, overshadowing. And in this instant, God's Spirit hovers over the chaotic and lifeless, dark void that hardly resembles the loving universe we know today. And this, patch, this passage is jam-packed with ancient imagery. So I think we have to do a little unpacking to kind of understand what's going on here. The word, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which is translated to breath and wind. It's kind of fun to say, ruach. Yeah. It's this unseen yet animating force. It's like when someone whispers in your ear and you can feel their breath and sometimes smell it. It's when you looked outside your window and you saw the wind shake the limbs of the trees. This is how the biblical authors 
would have understood how the world was working around them, that God himself, his ruach, was affecting everything. And so we see the presence of God, the breath of God, overshadowing this formless void. And anticipation is building. Something is about to happen in the story. And in verse 3, God breaks the silence. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Okay, reading this, we may be like, um, what just happened to the Spirit? He was, he was hovering, and then we don't hear anything about him. And I think if we're not careful, we can really miss on the Holy Spirit's activity in creation. So to understand this better, if you were to place your fingers in front of your lips and you were to have a conversation with somebody, no doubt you would feel your breath. You would feel a force. And so for the ancient Hebrews, as God speaks, his breath is being carried, or his breath, excuse me, is carrying his words and giving them life. And even more plainly in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, as God creates mankind and gives them dominion, he gives them dominion over everything that has the breath of life. In chapter 2, when God creates Adam from the dust, it says that he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Spirit's activity in Genesis has captured the imaginations of the biblical authors. We see in Job 33:4, Elihu says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And in Psalm 104:30, the psalmist sings, When you send forth your spirit, they, the animals, are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And the hearts and minds of our early church fathers were also captured as they penned the Nicene Creed. And it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. In full transparency, I think this truth is one that's really easy to take for granted, really difficult to grasp, but I think it's so powerful because it transforms the mundane into the holy. It doesn't seem to fit within our current framework of biology or imperative data, and to the modern mind, this seems primitive or imaginary, as if a fairy tale. But if we wrestle to take the biblical authors at their word, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I think our lives are transformed to have an abundance of meaning and purpose. It means everywhere where life is beginning, the Spirit of God is present. The deer that gives birth in the woods that no one sees. The tomato sprout that pokes up from the soil of your garden. And the teen mom whose baby is being fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that whatever, wherever life is preserved, respected, and defended, the life-giving spirit is there. Psalm 146.9 reads, And the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. And that means your own life, no matter how insignificant or average you think it is, 
It has been joyfully given to you by God. He sustains you for a divine purpose. Your breath is a small and powerful reminder that there's a life-giving God and that he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. The Spirit is the giver of life, all life. So we have this picture of God's Spirit, his Ruach, giving life to creation and to Mary's womb. But what I've noticed personally is that I can view the life-giving Spirit as an impersonal force or energy that the Father just kind of sends from above. I can view the Holy Spirit like Amazon Prime, where the thing I need just shows up in a box at my door. No conversation, no relationship. And I think if we're not careful, we can all have a tendency to treat the Spirit that way, this inanimate force that can be harnessed or a vibe that can be felt instead of a person to know. And I think that is far from what the Spirit is, or rather, who the Spirit is. When Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, will overshadow you, Mary, the word overshadow in Gabriel's message actually has the same application to a scene in Exodus chapter 40. In the book of Exodus, God's people find themselves enslaved in the nation of Egypt, but God hears their struggles, their pain, and their cries, and he raises up the prophet Moses to lead them out of slavery. And he does, through, and he does it through signs and wonders. And as God's people are in the wilderness, he gives them the law. He's trying to tell them how to properly relate to a loving God and to their neighbor. And he gives specific instructions to Moses to build what is called the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God himself would dwell amongst his people. And the Holy Spirit fills these craftsmen to give life to God's plan. And so when we get to Exodus 40, Moses has followed God's direction, dotted every I and crossed every T. And so let's go to Exodus chapter 40. We'll be in verse 34 through 38. It's also the end of Exodus, if it's easier. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here God's presence is depicted as a cloud that fills the tabernacle in the midst of his people. And the presence of the Lord guides Israel in their journeys. And this is the place where he speaks to Moses. He speaks to his people where they love and they worship him. And from Exodus 40 and many other instances in Scripture, we meet this God who is a personal God who desires and delights to draw near to his people. He's a God of relationship. And this image of God living, dwelling amongst his people, 
has inspired the authors to use words like fill, settle, overshadow, descend. And it's full in Luke's Advent story. We'll go into these in just a second, but Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel is telling Zechariah about his son to be born, he says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And when Elizabeth finally encounters Mary, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and praying, it says the heavens were opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus himself was filled with the Holy Spirit, in which God's love was lavished upon him there at his baptism and for the rest of his life and ministry. So it's clear the Holy Spirit is not an abstract force. The Holy Spirit is a person, someone to relate to. That means our communion with God is not confined to powerful worship night experiences or that week-long mission trip that you took. The Spirit eagerly desires to dwell with you and to speak to you while you're making your morning coffee, while you send an email at work, and when you take the trash out on Thursdays and your neighbor is trying to have a conversation with you. His constant presence can turn the mundane to the holy. And I believe this is what Luke's talking about, the kingdom of God being near and experience. For Luke, the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit indicates that God's kingdom has arrived, that God was dwelling with his people, restoring, healing, and giving life. In fact, it is through the Spirit's personal presence that God's life is shared with us, just as it was when the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis, or filled the tabernacle in Exodus, overshadowed Mary's womb. When we embrace this truth, I think we can truly harmonize with David, who sings out in one of the most famous psalms. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my, be- my bed in shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. But what exactly is this life that the Spirit desires to give us? Is it just the energy and strength to hold a conversation during the passing of the peace? Is it to raise a family? Is it to be a a good person? Um, Yeah, but it's also much more than that. The life that the Spirit offers us is a life that's centered on Jesus Christ. So if we look more deeply in the Advent story, returning back to Luke chapter 1, uh, Luke is going to show us that the Holy Spirit's filling is specifically centered on one goal, or rather really one person. So when Mary finally visits Elizabeth, starting in verse 39, I imagine Elizabeth just going through her daily routine, and whether she anticipates Mary's arrival or not, when Mary enters the home and greets her, everything changes. And it said, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, opens her eyes, and in this moment, it becomes more than an extended family reunion. It becomes an encounter with someone who's so set apart, otherworldly, greater than herself. And she cries, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she goes as far as calling Mary's unborn child, Lord, a title of authority, reverence, power, and divine appointment. Elizabeth's eyes were open to the person of Jesus. And when John the Baptist is finally born, in verse 67, it says, Zachariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. The Spirit gifts Zechariah not only with a son, but with a Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. His eyes are being opened to the person of Jesus. And after Jesus is born, his parents, Mary and Joseph, take him to be dedicated to the Lord as was custom. So they go down to Jerusalem and we meet a new character named Simeon. In verse 25 of chapter 2 in Luke's Gospel, it reads, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he had came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. I imagine that for Simeon, it was just a, a regular day at the office. He had another ceremony to perform. I mean, he had probably done hundreds before. But something was different this time. Maybe he could feel it as he walked up the temple steps. And as he held this fussy, vulnerable, ba vulnerable baby, he realizes that this is, in fact, the climactic moment of my entire life. And I'm sure it wasn't what he expected. I'm sure he expected the Christ to be a warrior king or a powerful prophet. There's no way he would be able to recognize that this baby was the Messiah apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Simeon's eyes were opened to the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so Luke wants it to be very clear that the Spirit lives to make much of Jesus and to enjoy him. The Spirit lives to make much of Jesus and to enjoy him. And we're invited by the Spirit into that love. And so I hoped if we looked at our own lives or the lives of others in the church, that we would see it full of the Spirit saturating our stories, always drawing near to us, opening our eyes to see who Jesus is. For example, I've seen the Spirit powerfully at work in my neighbor Venus. She's eight years old. She loves pop sockets and TikTok dances. And she comes to church on Sundays with Gabby and I. And one Sunday, um, after Soma Kids, she was like full of energy. And so I don't know what they're feeding our kids in there, um, but it's, it's wow. Um, but anyway, she, co- she comes up to us after kids, and she wants, to show, she wants to show us this picture that she drew. And so she's pressing this picture up against her face, and I'm trying to make out what it is. I think, I, I didn't, I think it might be Jesus, but it looked more like Soli from Monsters, Inc., but that's really besides the point. Uh, but she was so excited to show us this, and she was telling us how she learned about what the word mercy meant. And that Jesus was showing mercy to her and her mom, Maxine, and her sister, London, and her dog, Lola. And as she's smiling, holding this picture up to her face, we couldn't help but notice that the Holy Spirit is at work here. He's creatively revealing to Venus who Jesus is. So whether you grew up in the church or not, the Spirit of God has always been opening your eyes to see Jesus. He was the one that helped you become aware finally, or even convicted of your self-obsessed yet empty life. He was the one who transported you thousands of years back to Calvary, where you saw a man named Jesus hanging on a cross, and you realized that he hung there for you and me. That he was the one who gave you courage to say at that work happy hour, I'm actually a follower of Jesus. He was the one who gave you a personal sense when you read the words, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Knowing Jesus and enjoying him transforms everything. We become less self-obsessed and more Christ-obsessed. In fact, Paul writes about this quite often in his letters. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, which is a letter in which he's writing um, to a church who had lots of troubles, he's telling them that God has offered a new covenant to his people through Jesus and how it far outweighs the previous covenants that God made to his people through the law. And he talks about how the Jews who had not turned to Jesus were under what he called a veil that prevented them from truly knowing Christ in the scriptures. And so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. In 15, Paul says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit comes that we may know Jesus Christ, and that we may behold him, or delight in him, and treasure him. 
And as we love and behold him, we can't help but to want to be like him. We're very impressionable creatures. And I think we are created that way so that we can reflect what our God is like. The truth here that I need to receive, and I think all of us do, is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. The great preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon writes with this in mind. I think we got it on the screen. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking onto Jesus. Making much of Jesus Christ and enjoying him is the transformative life that the Holy Spirit offers us. It's not merely the modification of behavior, it's the reorienting of the heart's deepest desires. As we're empowered to love and delight in Jesus, everything changes. And so we'll take a look at how the Spirit enriches our lives individually, as a church, in the world. As the Spirit transforms us to be like Christ, we also now share in his relationship with the Father. We know from past weeks that the Father has always loved and delighted in his Son. And Jesus' greatest joy is to be loved and to love his Father. And this love was always meant to be shared with us. In John 17, when Jesus is praying to his Father, praying on behalf of his disciples and of us, he makes this very clear. In verse, I believe it's 24. Father, I desire that they also, the disciples, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, and to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And Paul adds on to this in Galatians chapter 4. He says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As the spirit joins us to Christ, we too become sons and daughters. And we can join in with Jesus, calling God our Abba, our Father, our Daddy, our Appa. And we can now share in the Father's delight, just like he said to Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. And so why is this important for the Christian life? Because we now know that God is not an overbearing parent who's always expecting more and more and more from you and is never pleased. 
nor do we know him as an absent father who only shows up at the big life events and calls every now and then, but doesn't really seem to care about your everyday challenges or needs. Nor do we hear his voice as one who is always accusing, constantly pointing out our insufficiencies, holding failure over our heads. But now we know him as Abba, our loving father who says, this is my beloved child, and I'm pleased with you. This is the life the Spirit calls us into, to love the Father as the Son did. And to love the Father, or excuse me, to love the Son as the Father did. We are delighted in, and our delight becomes full. And that transforms us individually, and that transforms us as a church, as a community. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit and to come together on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever day of the week you meet? I think we could find the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There Paul is writing to a really broken, abusive church, but he does not let what's going on within the church take away from the beauty and the power and the possibility that the Holy Spirit offers this community. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. Uh, within social groups in our world, I think there's always kind of this pressure to conform to a set of interests, hobbies, or Instagram influencers. I mean, we're always trying to, like, get in, to stay in, stay relevant, and we can end up fearing anything that would jeopardize our sense of belonging. But I want to make this clear. Within the community of believers, the church, there is no requirement to conform to anyone other than Jesus Christ. In fact, the unique differences of who you are can find a place where they're celebrated, valued, and accepted as the Spirit grafts you into this family. And to Paul, there's no margins anymore. There is only the, bar, the body and every part of it matters. Even the parts that don't look like you or the parts that you have a hard time relating to, diversity becomes beautiful, not divisive here. And this family is unlike any other. We don't have to constantly watch out first and foremost for ourselves. Through the Spirit, we can rest in God as our loving Father. And so we can be like Jesus and look past our own reflection in the mirror and recognize the needs of others before our own. In fact, Paul says that the Spirit is given to us Soma downtown, for the common good. In spirit-filled community, self-giving love isn't the exception. It's the rule. 
And so we become vessels in which the Spirit powerfully shares his love and kindness towards us. And so we experience the nearness of God's kingdom as we lay hands on one another and pray and people experience healing. Or when we prayerfully share a word that God places on our hearts and it gives comfort and encouragement to someone else. Or when when we're just fumbling through a discussion and we learn something about who God is by processing the scriptures. I'll never forget, several months ago, I opened up to my MC about this conversation I was going to have with someone really close to me on the topic of LGBTQ+. And the tension, man, was like so thick. Um, I felt incredibly anxious and unsure of what to say, how to approach this conversation. And someone from my MC texted me. I can't, he wouldn't want me to say his name. Um, he texted me the next day, and he said this. Hey, man, last night I was thinking about your impending talk, and, as I felt, and, and I felt as if the Spirit gave me a nudge. As you always should, weigh this against Scripture and what the Spirit tells you, but I thought this could be helpful. I saw this dude. Um, Do with it what you will. And he says, God has always been for the marginalized and the oppressed. Throughout the Old and New Testament, he has shown up and had a heart for those who are unwanted. Man, I had no idea I needed to hear this. No idea that God was trying to remind me of his heart and his posture to those who feel different or unwanted. And that changed the entire conversation. And so if you're someone who's today hoping, like, man, I want to see more of the Holy Spirit in my life, then my, one of my number one things to say to you is to be a part of a community of faithful men and women. And I promise you, within the messiness of human relationships, you're going to experience forgiveness, undeserved love, joy, the presence of Christ and others, and the kingdom of God. And so kind of to wrap up, now we're going to look at what the Spirit means for the world. When we think of the world, uh, we can a lot of times come from two polarly, uh, polar opposite places. Uh, we can see the world as a place to completely abstain from. Or on the other side, we can view it as a place to comfortably conform to. Contrary to these, I think the transforming life of the Spirit offers us a new way to live and relate to this world. The world becomes not a place of complete rejection or a place of unhinged acceptance, but rather a mission field, a place where you live on purpose, where your relationships are not by accident, and a place where your words and actions carry eternal amounts of meaning. So I think it's fitting, since we've looked at the Gospel of Luke, to shift to Luke part two, which is the book of Acts. In fact, these two pieces were meant to be read together. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter one. After Jesus has resurrected from the grave, he appears to his disciples, and before he ascends to the Father, his disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds to them, saying, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
And shortly after this, Luke tells us that the disciples who were waiting received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And from this moment on, a powerful shift in the story of Jesus starts to take place. His disciples begin preaching powerful messages like the rabbi once did. Peter, John, and Paul begin healing people as Jesus had done countless times before. And the church faces suffering and hardship, but endures just like their master did. And even more ordinarily, believers in this young church are extending generosity towards one another. They're opening their homes to strangers. They're caring for the poor and widows. They hear the Spirit's direction and they follow. They share fellowship with people who were once considered enemies, outsiders. Everyone in this community begins to bear a striking resemblance to a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And so as we enjoy Christ and make much of him, our ordinary and sometimes extraordinary lives serve as a witness to who Jesus is and that he is bringing refreshment to a dry and dead world. And so our city, Indianapolis, becomes a place to graciously love, to patiently serve, to joyfully live with Christ. Your neighborhood, your block, becomes a mission field, a place where you live on purpose and where your words and actions carry eternal meaning. So to close, I believe that the Spirit has an invitation for you. Uh, Maybe it's to know the Spirit as a person. Maybe it's to become more ingrained in faithful community where your spiritual gifts can be used. Or maybe it's to share the gospel of Christ with a neighbor who doesn't know them yet. So whatever it may be, I want to share just two things. One, know that wherever the Spirit is leading you, it's to a place of loving and enjoying Christ. The Spirit will never lead you away from Him. And two, be open-handed yet expectant. And I think we can actually learn a lot from Mary's final response to the angel Gabriel's message. I think Jordan got it on the screen. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So now we'll transition to a time of communion. And I really can't think of a better place to see the face and the person of Christ than at the dinner table. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he is dining with his disciples, he offers them the bread. He says, take it, eat. This is my body given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he takes the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Anytime you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. And so what will happen is we'll have the folks from hospitality provide three stations. We'll have the elements of communion. And I ask that you come down the middle aisles, break the bread, dip it into the cup, and may this be a place where you get to love and delight in Jesus. A place where that email in your inbox can wait. 
or that Sunday afternoon plan is later in the day, and you can just enjoy and delight in Christ and what he's done for you. Uh, We'll have gluten-free bread in the center, and as you return, return through the outer aisles. It just helps with traffic. So I'll pray, and then let's partake. Loving Father, thank you for your spirit, for giving us life, and a life that is so full, a life that enjoys and delights in your son Jesus. I pray that wherever you are leading us, whether it be ordinary or extraordinary, that we would have the posture of Mary to be open-handed, to say, I'm a servant of the Lord. And I pray for those who don't know you, that they're sitting here, or they're living amongst us in our neighborhoods. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes and their hearts to see the gracious love of Jesus Christ, that they may know him and share in this immense joy. So as we take of communion, I pray that you would turn ordinary elements, ordinary routines into something extraordinary to an encounter with you. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. Amen.